there's a massive skill gap between 1.0 and 2.0. We run across practices all the time that have hired a smart person that likes investing and has above average Excel skills, and they can go in and build light versions of quant 1.0 type models. Quant 2.0 completely changes that game. The skill set of the person that would be required to run 2.0 type models are much more complex and vast. That skill gap will also create a lot fewer players in the space, but the ones who do play will be larger. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Chris Shuba, Helios Quantitative Research, or just Helios for short. What's going on, my friend? How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Just trying to make my way in the world right now. You know, it's the top of the year, so new year, new set of problems, new set of opportunities. You know how it is. Well, well, hey, man, I'm I'm really stoked and appreciative of you joining us here on Bridging the Gap today. I, I'm interested to kind of get into asset management, investment management, as y'all call it. I think y'all call it ICO, CIO, or insourced CIO, mm-hmm. and talk about what that means and and how it's been built as a as a kind of a a segment of of our industry and a and a kind of a vertical. But before we do. I always like to learn about the people that are on the podcast. Uh, I think that that's what makes this so much fun. So the way that I like to learn about people, uh, maybe it's crazy, but I always just ask, you know, what did the 13-year-old Chris Shuba want to do when he grew up? 13-year-old Chris Shuba. Let's see. I was was living in outside of New Orleans at that point in time. So pretty much probably the only thing I cared about was sports. I was probably thinking I was going to, you know, like every kid, go somewhere with that, which clearly didn't happen. But you know, I always had an interest in actually what, what I'm doing now. I was always kind of a math kid, always kind of experimenting a little bit with like, what new information could I figure out if I had a process? And so collected baseball cards. So yeah, in a weird way, the 13-year-old me wouldn't be super surprised about what I'm doing now, but I'm just much less famous of an athlete, I guess. <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> or you- Or not famous at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and many others, you know, always thought, how, why wouldn't I be a professional baseball player? That's what I thought until mm-hmm. junior year. And I realized sitting on the bench for three straight years doesn't make you a professional. So um, it was the coach's fault. That, he just didn't see your talent. Well, that's, I mean, that's what they always said. I mean, that's what all the parents said. They just didn't quite see the talent. They right. couldn't see through the the lack of talent uh, there. But, uh, you know, we're not going to go there. That's for my therapy session later today. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm curious now going from the 13-year-old Chris Shuba outside of New Orleans, thinking, going to go play professional, collecting baseball cards, checking the Beckett and seeing how to trade them to make some money. How did the journey get to now being CEO and, and co-founder of Helios? How, walk us through that journey. Sure. So probably the best place to start the story is I was I was working within Ameriprise's corporate offices before 2008. And, oh, you know, my my world had always been a little bit on the analytics and math side of things. And post 2008, Ameriprise bought Columbia Threadneedle or what was Columbia Management at the time. And they opened up a quant team. And so I think I was like employee number three or four on the quant team. And we started really doing a lot of cool, you know, what I call quant 1.0 type of work where you're, you know, taking data, running it through basic systems like Excel and whatnot to find patterns and, and of course, using some advanced systems as well. But and along the way, I became friends with an advisor at the largest at the time Ameriprise practice. And he said, well, how do we take 
these quantitative capabilities that are locked away in big companies and make retail versions of these processes. At the time, it really wasn't possible due to, you know, cloud computing hadn't come along far enough and access to data. But by 2013, it was. So I left Columbia in, in uh, end of 2013, beginning of 2014, and went to work at this practice and started building out, you know, quant 1.0 capabilities within the within their space. And they were a big enough practice where they had an aura. And they said, you know, other people, other practices wanted to plug in. And, you know, Ameriprise Corporate wasn't going to have that. So it basically means I had to start Helios. And so, you know, we grew mostly by word of mouth. And we evolved really from being a, you know, here's a model or two, take it or leave it, to a full-blown in-source CIO that supports the entire breadth and width of all the asset management functions that need to go on inside a practice to create kind of that world-class asset management experience. And, you know, now that, you know, we've so fully gotten into AI, machine learning, you know, neural networks, now now we're even past that quant 1.0 world into, you know, quant 2.0. And, and I'm probably just making up words here at this point, but that's kind of how I categorize it in my brain, so. <laughs> well, I, I think it's extremely interesting. I, I think that it makes sense of given the advancements of the technologies. I, I guess I'm curious, I'm going to ask this as a layman, even though, you know, we all hear about quantitative research and quantitative you know, investing and in quant, quants, as, mm-hmm. as we call them in the industry, I guess, right? You are a quant. Is what is, what is it? How do you explain it to someone? I mean, how is it different from just going out and kind of analyzing from a fundamental standpoint, companies and deciding to invest in them. Talk to us about the difference there, if you could. Sure. Some of it's splitting hairs. Like if if you're following a mathematic process for determining the value of a company and you're doing that over and over again, that's quant, right? But some people might not consider it that way. What I really look at is that quant in its most basic form is taking lots of data and finding patterns in it. It's really what you're doing, right? And some patterns are very hard to reveal, and you have to have complex algorithms to, to reveal them. And some are very straightforward, such as a moving average. So quant, when it first came out in the late mid to late 2000s, and it was, it was this rare thing that people didn't have access to. In the teens, it was, you know, you, you have to get access to it through a company like Helios. Now we're in a world where Excel is powerful enough and data sets are, are, are readily available enough where anybody with above average Excel skills and a you know, access to data can be hired by a practice and you can deploy, you know, quant 1.0, which is, you know, you use a process to look for patterns and then you assume that those patterns are going to persist in that same type of fashion forever and averages out a better return structure than what you otherwise would do. That's both the power and the weakness of a quant 1.0 framework. So let me pause there because I, you know, well, I talked. Well, then let's anyway. let's make that let's make that that jump now. Mm-hmm. So quant 1.0 is kind of there, there's all these different frameworks, statistical frameworks to find these patterns, mm-hmm. and then you jump now to the quant 2.0 where we have artificial intelligence and mm-hmm. neural networks, and how how does that change the game? What does that now look like in terms of what quantitative investing looks like these days. Yeah, it changes everything. It's such a vast topic where I'll kind of just pick a lane and, and take it, but just know that there's you know so much more to, to get into. But for me, what Quant 2.0 represents is the ability to create a lot more consistency in the outcomes of quantitative processes. So if you look over the COVID era and you look at a lot of active quant strategies, they really struggled. 
And the reason by that is that patterns broke down. The long run correlations that quantitative processes are built on reversed. And the most you know, easy to understand one is what happened with stocks and bonds. For 20 years, up until a couple of years ago, stocks and bonds were negative you know, 0.5 co correlated. You know, it, it changed, but it, you know, that's kind of where they were. Now they're positively 0.5 correlated. So if you built a process around fluctuating between stocks and bonds based upon volatility or trend or whatever, you, you name it, the last two years weren't that great for you. You know, especially, you know, in that scenario, maybe 2022 was, was particularly gnarly because you would jump out of the frying pan and into the fire. Now, the thing about quant is that you say, well, I'm going to find these patterns, these long run correlations, basically, and through good times and bad, I'm going to ride them. And some advisors, very few are good at sticking to that. Most aren't. And so when you have a period like a couple year window, that grinds. You start to lose clients as an advisor, and it's hard to stick with the eventuality of the fact that every model at some point in time is going to struggle, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's a whole different rabbit hole that I can go down here, which is a personal opinion around, you know, this is exactly the time where advisors now start to herd together and cluster. And now we're going to start seeing headlines again about fee compression and commoditization and all those different things, just like what we saw post-2008. But in any case, Quant 2.0 is a leap. And, and I, again, Quant 2.0 is a horrible name, but it's what I've been calling it. Where now you have AI and machine learning. What, what's really happening in this lane that I'm following, and again, this is a vast conversation, is if we know the weakness or one of the weaknesses of Quant 1.0 is this dependency on patterns or long-run correlations, how do we use machine learning, neural networks to complement our long-run knowledge with a real-time analysis of what's going on right now? So that when conditions have changed to the point where these long-run correlations have broken down, how do we use real-time information to soften that, that eventual underperformance and maybe even turn it into outperformance? Mm. And as you add this ability, you're, you're clearly improving the model. So therefore, your, your outcomes get more consistent over time. And of course, it's all in the design and I'm oversimplifying a lot. But the quant 2.0 is really the marriage of all the things that we love about long-run correlations and pattern recognition combined with the ability to take in new information as it exists right now, understand if there's a conflict and learn from it. So does it not, because like, as I think about where I was kind of thinking through it, which I thought was super interesting, you may be alluding to it or maybe a different lane, is that the ability to say, this is what the long-term average was. Now run it through a prediction model that goes further. And is that part of it? Or is it just to be able to consume the current data and implement that so quickly to then use that information on the prediction? Is that, is, is that in the similar lane or, or, or is it different? You're exactly right. So one of the deployments of a machine learning algorithm that we have or set of algorithms is we take these long run characteristics that exist by all these various asset classes. And we take that long run characteristic by how they behave over time. So their patterns. And then we suck in all the data that's going on right now, millions and millions of data points and use machine learning to understand, well, what of those millions of data points are actually moving markets right now. Now, how does that unique set of instances right now compare to what's happened historically? And what are the odds of that 
asset class, individual asset class, changing its behavior pattern, let's say over the next 30 days. Does that make sense? Mm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's it, you can't accurately take a long run 20 year pattern and apply it to the next you know 30 days or week or day or whatever it is without understanding the conditions that are moving it now. Mm. And that is such a vast and complex data set that you need AI or something. When I say AI, you know, you're talking about a lot of different types of math. So you have to use some form of AI to do that quickly and with, with success. So you're right. It's exactly what you're doing. You're understanding the odds of a change, not necessarily predicting the future, which maybe I'm splitting hairs there, but you get the point. Yeah. <laughs> so, and this is a naive question, I think, but you know, when you think about quant investing and, and now the access to data sources and the advancements of AI and the, the accessibility of AI and everything of that nature, is there a reversion? I know you're talking about how it was like a following of the herd of advisors, but is there a reversion to the mean of the benefit of quant investing at some point because everybody has access to all the same models and all the same data and, and everything of that nature? Or, or, or where does that alpha always lie on the quant side? from that standpoint relative to, you know, I guess, alternative air, alternative ways? Sure. So I'm going to parse this into two pieces. The, the first piece is there's a tendency, I think, for many folks to say things like everyone, but everyone doesn't always do the same thing. So even though there is this, you know, sense of there's lots of different models and in, especially in the quant 1.0 space, and they all, they're all trend, they're all this, they're all that. You're right. There is an overlap. There is a, a amount of activity that exists because there is consistency among a lot of quant 1.0 in the world. But that's a drop in the bucket relative to the whole of everything else everyone is doing all at the same time in different ways. Generally speaking, my experience is that if there is ever a trade that's powerful enough to be noticed, there's always going to be somebody on the other end hedging that trade or taking advantage of it to kind of wash it away a little bit. That being said, there's also all the different things that pummel markets as a whole that, that changes behavior sets of, of data. And that's why machine learning or, and things that can absorb data and learn from it are important because the world is always changing. And that's a weakness of quant 1.0 because it takes a long time for new data to become large enough as part of the, the data set to be used, if you will. Mm-hmm. So there will always be hurting effects that go on, but... In general, unless you're in a very small liquid pool, I've really just never seen any great studies that have shown that there's so much hurting going on that that the outcomes are dramatically different, I guess is the way mm. I would say it. But a lot of that fear also goes away in a quant 2.0 world because when you adopt, when you add in mathematic layers, which is effectively what 2.0 is, right? It's absorbing all of 1.0 and adding onto it. Now the range of possibilities gets a heck of a lot wider. So by Mm -hmm. widening out those mathematics, you get that. The second thing is that there's a massive skill gap between 1.0 and 2.0. So one of the things that we come across quite a bit in our seat at Helios is, you know, we run across practices all the time that have hired a smart person that likes investing and has above average Excel skills, and they can go in and build, you know, light versions of quant 1.0 type models. And a lot of them, that's what they do. Quant 2.0 completely changes that game. The skill set of the person that would be required to run 
2.0 type models are much more complex and vast than someone who's above average at Excel and likes investing. And I'm oversimplifying mm -hmm. clearly, but that skill gap will also create a lot fewer players in the space, but the ones who do play will be larger right. to serve more right. advisors. So the resources to be able to do it because there'll be more on demand and demand, it'll just become more costly. And so only the bigger players will be able to do it. Well, I mean, another way to say it is like just the cost of data alone to run a basic quant 2.0 capability is an order of magnitude higher than what it would just cost to hire Helios because we're a flat cost, we're a flat fee. Right. So why? You know what I mean? It, there's no yeah. upside to it. Yeah, to have your own. Um, and, and so what is that? Because then I want to get into kind of what asset management looks like going forward. But what is the implementation? How does that look to the end client? Because you're serving advisors. So you're running these models. You're probably running similar models for multiple firms. How does it look to the end client that, that gets it? Are they seeing trades every day? Is it through a mutual fund structure? Is it through an ETF structure? How does that, that look? Yeah, great question. So Funny enough, everything we do here at Helios is custom. So no two advisors we support have the same models. They might rhyme with each other in a different way, but in terms of their underlying holdings or those types of things, they're all somehow different. When we begin working with an advisor, that's step one. We analyze their practice. We look at all the holdings they're already using, the models they're already using, their philosophy, their, their client story. And we build all of their, their model ecosystem around all that. So for most of the end clients, it just feels like a rebalance because we're going to repurpose as many of the underlying mutual funds, ETFs, et cetera, as we can. So it just feels like a rebalance to them. Everything we do is typically white labeled through the advisor. So unless they tell the clients we exist, they don't know. But all the client does see is that they get a substantial upgrade in their ability and their advisor's ability to articulate their process and create accountability even through bad years on whether or not, you know, a model or a portfolio is doing what it's supposed to do. And that's, you know, the, the benefit of quantitative modeling. Does that make sense so far before that I- That makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I'm yep. following it. So they're, they're just seeing it. They're seeing all the holdings in the portfolio. And then you're pushing the trades through, through a connection. Or are you pushing trade, trade ideas to the team and the team has to go execute it? Or are you pushing the trades all the way through execution? The advisor gets to choose. So we can have a flat fee relationship with our advisor that we have all the technology interface. The models are sitting there. When the models need to be traded on their system, we'll tell them, here's exactly the tickers and percentages based upon your custom models, you know, and then they can upload that into their trading software and they can execute all the trades. And we do that at a flat fee. Or we can do everything that we do, build all their models, provide all of our ICIO services, and we'll handle all the trading for them if it's an if it's an RIA or you know select group of independents but mostly RIAs we'll execute all the trading for them and th but then at that point in time we're not trade we're not charging a flat fee to the advisor we're charging a, a small amount of basis points relative to like what SMAs cost to the client so whether you want us to behave as a you know low cost SMA with all the capabilities of an ICIO behind it we can do it that way and the advisor doesn't have to worry about execution or we can be a flat fee, low cost way of getting you and your team what you need and then you execute. So we're flexible either way. Yeah. Uh, staying on this path of, of how, you know, asset management strategies to asset management, you know, I, you're, I feel that you're very close to it. So that's why I feel I think I can, I, I feel I can ask this question. Mm -hmm. 
I'm curious in your perspective of the future of asset management mm-hmm. in, in in terms of in terms of the wealth management ecosystem, right? And and I'm I'm going to stay more specific on the security side as opposed to is investment management so valuable and everything of that nature. It's still a core function of what we do. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to go down that avenue. But when I look at it, you know, you you look at this trend that's happened in asset management, right? You had mutual funds mm-hmm. that came about, then you had ETFs come about. And everybody got squeezed on fees on each of those. And now you have direct indexing coming about because of some advancements in technologies that have allowed for that. What is the the next, in your perspective, the next iteration of, of asset management? I know that you mutual or mutual funds and ETFs are still used mm-hmm. and they're still heavily used, but there's just another now iteration with direct indexing that's selling against the ability that you can even customize an ETF. Mm-hmm. Those first low cost ETFs could beat you, you know, beat the regular mutual fund. And then you had now direct indexing. What is the next iteration in this world of investing as people are always looking to, to find ways to add value and in investment management on the investing side? That's a good question. I haven't really thought about it too deeply, but my expectation is that the only major leaps that are going to come in the product wrappers are going to come in the form of either tax management, which I know that you know a lot of the direct indexing conversation is around, but also ETFs handle uh, some of that, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or create some form of a new access that we don't currently have. To me, the perfect investment vehicle right now is still the ETF. I like direct indexing in certain scenarios, but I'm a, it's been around forever and I'm kind of shocked at the amount of publicity it's gotten for no real great reason. You know, I've seen all the papers and I, I love how in certain scenarios, you know, the tax loss nature of it is great. There are literally zero end consumers that I'm aware of that want to look at a statement full of 7,000 individual stocks in their account. So it's a massive increase in complexity from the client end to try to drive some potentially big value on the tax end. And for certain clients, that's great and absolutely. But I don't think direct direct indexing is ubiquitous enough or, or scalable enough or easy enough to understand to replace the position of the ETF right now, in, in my opinion. But again, mm-hmm. I know somebody's listening to this. It's very deep into direct indexing is going to argue with me, but that's just my opinion on it. Now, if there is a ET, now the, what made the ETF amazing was its liquidity to break it into pieces and, you know, if needed, and at the same point in time, uh, more tax efficiency. Now, if an iteration beyond the ETF can be built to make it more tax efficient through new laws or new access can be created through, you know, being able to have pools connected to it that can allow for typically illiquid things to become liquid and all those different things that can be connected. I think there's a lot of evolution that could happen within the ETF, but the big major leaps in terms of transparency, breaking it apart, cost. I mean, there's there's two basis point ETFs right now, one basis point ETF. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I really don't think that area is ripe for disruption. I think that legislation and tax opportunities that might come are certainly a combination of innovation in our industry plus, you know, politics. So I don't know. I'm, I, I hadn't thought much about it. I'm just kind of riffing here a little bit, but that's, but I that's think how that I'm That's reacting. right. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, to your point on direct indexing, right? I don't think anybody really wants to, I, I've, I've talked to many of those firms and, you know, 
you're holding, you're showing 600 positions. It, it, it reminds me of, that was always a selling point that I was, when, when someone came over from Morgan Stanley and had a SMA that had 500 equity positions for a $200,000 account. It was always mm-hmm. an easy sell. It's like, you don't need this much. You can do all of this in, you know, in a, in a smaller way. And so I think it's a psychological aspect. And, and so then I'm curious from your standpoint, when you go and you're, you're serving your advisors and you're looking at how you're doing for them, how do you judge success? Is it all performance based on how your models are performing? Or does the ICIO kind of infrastructure create more value outside of just the, the model benefits from, from that standpoint, in your opinion, in, in the value that you drive for advisors? Oh, 100%. I mean, look, you can't be in this industry and not be somewhat competitive and you want to drive good returns, right? But one of the things that we've spent a lot of time and energy on is an analysis tool we call our confidence circle. And the confidence circle backtests any unique combination of models that we customize for an advisor and show them exactly how they behave throughout time. And then that constantly updates so that through good times and bad, an advisor always knows if a model's on track or not. And that's critically important for the advisor from a compliance documentation perspective, but also from an advisor or from a client's perspective. Nobody likes to go through a period of underperformance. You know you're going to. So if we do, is it normal? Is it supposed to be doing this or not? You know. So we take great lengths to certainly create as much outperformance as we can, but also normalize the idea that asset management is a journey and it's got its ups and downs. And how do you stay committed to a process when you go through those periods of time? That being said, we're interested in an advisor being able to deliver a world-class asset management experience to their clients. And that's a heck of a lot more than models. So we actually do six major pieces for our advisors. First and foremost, we do all the holdings, analytics, mutual funds, ETFs, individual stocks. We have our whole confidence rating platform for that. We do the models like we've talked about. We help them uh, build and design mathematically diverse portfolios so that they, you know, by, by our view, mathematically increase the odds of achieving the financial plan, which is ultimately what everybody wants. That comes from portfolio design if you have the right models. So those are hand in hand and that's that's what we do too. We're actually making some big technology investments to help streamline how an advisor actually builds portfolios. We do all the communications. We build tons of content for our advisors. So they use it internally, they use it for social media, they use it in their client conversations. We build all their decks, presentations, everything they would use to make sure that they're communicating effectively. We do all their compliance documentation for holdings models and portfolios. It's basically automated in our system so that you know once a quarter, once a month, hit a few buttons and we've documented everything for you. And finally, we handle all the training and education of their team as they grow and expand. Mm -hmm. So those are the six major functions, if you will, um, outside of trading that that an investment department would do. And like I said, they can have us for trading too. So it's kind of six plus um, Mm -hmm. depending upon the scenario. So our value to advisors is about them being able to deliver a world-class experience. And that takes a lot of things going. But yeah, the, the headliner, the one that everyone wants to talk about is always model performance. And and uh, we'll never get away from that, given the industry. So, yeah, and I mean, as an entrepreneur, as you know, especially also in this industry, and I'm always curious to ask entrepreneurs this question as they're building their business: What's the biggest challenge you're facing right now? What's the biggest hurdle for y'all? Oh, by by far and away, the biggest challenge that we face is that advisors are really, really busy. The good ones, you know what I mean, and for an advisor to take a moment and see something like Helios, which we don't really have any natural competitors. We, nobody's running around talking about ICIOs or, you know, and, and even the term OCIO 
is got a million different definitions to it. You know, the heart, the, the worst thing every day that I hear is an advisor tells us, oh my God, I had no idea something like you existed. And I'm like, well, we've been emailing you for five years, you know, or something. We've, we've had a million booths that you've walked by and just getting, just getting mind share to sit down, you know, for 15 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, and think about their practice. If they had a partner like Helios, that's, that's the biggest challenge that we have mm. by far. So, mm, Yeah. And, and I, I'm curious on, because, so one of the challenges that we faced when we were building our technology company, Benjamin, which was a workflow automation engine for financial advisors was similar to that, right? It was a, it was a newer technology, a, a newer vertical and advisors and even operations team just didn't have the time. Mm-hmm. And, and so if there's that, you know, one thing and, and you don't need to make it like a straight sales pitch, but mm-hmm. you know, I always was, you know, I was always trying just to help them see the tangibility of the value and the simplicity of getting it running. But they just say, well, I just don't have enough time because that's mm-hmm. an easy, easy out. So what's that? What's that one thing that you know you wish that people would just say? Gosh, I know Helios. I mean, this is why I just need to take that five minutes or ten minutes. What? Why? What would be that statement that you could use for advisors to say that would get them to to see the the light? Hmm. You know, I'm I'm a very what's in it for me kind of person in these conversations. You know, I think that most folks are gonna intuit anything new that they come across as saying, what do I get out of this, right? And Mm -hmm. that might seem harsh, but I think that's how most people operate. We built Helios to do three things at its end result. So if an advisor hears these three things, and even one of them is, is resonating, we should have a conversation, right? Because even if Helios is a little bit of work to explore and, you know, takes a couple of minutes to implement us, if they get these things at the end, it's worth it, right? And so we built ourselves around three principles. Number one, we want advisors to focus on their highest and best use. We want to take their workload down so they can maximize their time doing what they're best at so their practice can grow, right? Number two, we built Helios to make them look good to their clients. Every advisor has one thing they care about, and that is that their clients like them. Our job is to put their value prop on steroids by typically taking a piece of the business that maybe isn't as strong as it could be and making that world-class. And then the last thing is we make advisors more profitable. We help them grow their business. In many cases, Helios is used as a way to generate revenue from us as opposed to being an expense, but certainly we create scale and efficiency. So if, if, I, if I talk to an advisor and they don't wanna look good to their clients, they don't wanna focus on you know, what they do best and they don't wanna make more money, then I don't, know what, I don't know what else to say at that point in time. But that's the net result of Helios. So if those are agenda items for 2024 for an advisor, what's the harm in a conversation? You know, That's the way I love I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. All right, last question before we move to just some of the final wrap-up questions. I'll let you get back to doing the good work you're already doing. You know, AI is the, the the theme. Everybody's talked about it. You know, I, I was actually talking with a, a friend of mine who, who does a lot of writing. He's like, I'm tired of talking about AI. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to write about AI. Yeah. But I mean, there, there's a lot there, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot there. So I, I'm just curious from your standpoint, you're close to it. There's an impact that you're that it's having directly on what you do day in and day out. Mm-hmm. What are you most excited about, about AI, one? And then two, do you see it to be here to stay or is it just going to kind of fade off in the darkness and only impact a few small areas of our world? Oh, you know, the second one's so easy. Yeah. I mean, 
now that this genie's out of the bottle, there's to use another, there's no putting the toothpaste back in the or toothpaste back in the, the tube. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, there's, there's no doubt that AI is here to stay. It's just too powerful to go away. It's not a gimmick, if that makes sense. So yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not expecting it to go away. To your first question, I mean, what, what path would you want me to go down on that? I mean, like I can go like a hundred different directions, but is there like, go a, the like most a vein? Interesting, go the most interesting path that you think, most intriguing. So I think the greatest opportunity for AI and this is going to sound boring because it doesn't have that flash to it, but what it does is it allows us on our end to, Helios is a small company. We're bootstrapped. We're not, I mean, everybody else in our world is a massive company or venture capital funded, and then there's Helios. And we have to be so smart about the way that we spend our resources in order to compete against bottomless piles of money. And what this does for us is, it used to be in the past that if I wanted to build a quant 1.0 algorithm, I would have to know the data sets that I want, acquire them, put my brain's theories or my team's theories against it, do it linearly in you know Excel or Excel Plus type programs that could take days or weeks or months just to solve one test only to have it be worthless. In the AI space, I can build a neural net with every piece of data that I have ask it a question I'm trying to solve and have it tell me exactly the process that might've taken me years to find or never. Mm. So for us, AI is the great hope of equalizing these vast companies with all these resources that can throw time at problems. And that's what's kept them in the lead in certain areas. And AI democratizes that for someone like me. So I'm super excited about those concepts, even if they don't sound as fun as like building a Terminator robot that can run around and you know do jumping jacks. Like I don't care about any of that. I care about scale, efficiency, knowledge that comes from those types of things. So boring I like answer. This, but, I, like, I like the yeah. Terminator jumping jack answer. I'll, I'll go with that <laughs> one. But I, I do, and I think that it does create opportunity, right? And it creates an opportunity, creates innovation, and, and allows some really cool things to happen that may not have happened in large companies. So I, I can appreciate, mm -hmm. and I love that answer. So I'm going to leave it there. But I, I get you to answer two questions I ask every guest on my podcast, oh, no. and one of the main reasons I do this podcast is to, well, to first off deliver value to the listeners and insights that I think are unique and different. But it's also because I'm a natural lifelong learner and thirst of mm -hmm. curiosity and like to learn from people that are much smarter than me. And, and you being one of those. One of the ways I like to learn, though, is <laughs> via reading books. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah, that's smart then. That means that's yeah. smarter than uh, right. a lot. The uh, But is, you know, I always like to read books. So I always like to ask people on the podcast, what's one book out there that you think everybody should read? Or if they've already read it, they should reread it. I'm rereading Traction right now, which is the EOS operating model, which is something that we're adopting here at Helio. So it just happens to literally be on my desk right now. Here it is. And it's a reread. So that's just the answer. I did read a cool fiction novel that I think they're turning into a movie that if you are kind of a math nerdy type of person, it's called Project Hail Mary. And I think Ryan Gosling is going to be starring in it if it actually gets built. But it's a super, it's a, it's a, it's a sci-fi story and in it, they do a lot of just like math talk to solve problems. And it's, if you like that thing, it's kind of fun and it's a, it's a good read too. It's a very unique read. So if you're looking for some fiction, some sci-fi, check that one out. 
Love that. Love mm-hmm. that. Last question I have. We talked about a lot of stuff here, and, I, and I'm sure there's a lot that we didn't talk about. But uh, I always like to leave the listeners with something actionable they can implement today or tomorrow to better themselves or better their business. From your perspective, what's one actionable insight that you hope to leave the listeners with today? Oh, man. Well, if I'm talking about action, if you're an advisor, you should call us. But if it's uh, but outside of that, you know, the thing that I would say and the thing I've always said for many years around investing is that find a process you believe in and stick to it. If you want to maximize your chance of, you know, increasing your compound rate, achieving your dreams, it's not going to come from bouncing between between things. Everything will go through periods of good. Everything will go through periods of bad. But as long as you get behind the decision-making process through those good and bad times, you're not going to have the the regret or the fear or the emotions that go with creating, you know, bad decisions. So, you know, if there's one ubiquitous thing, find something you believe in, find a way of looking at the world, find a way of valuing things and use that over and over and over again. And, you know, you're not going to have the greatest returns of anybody in the history of mankind. There's only one person who gets that and I don't know who they are, but you'll get comfortably where you need to be. So that's my piece of advice. Chris Shuba, you're the man. I really appreciate you joining us and super interesting conversation, super interesting what y'all are doing at Helios. I am uh, enthralled and will continue to follow you. And I'm sure that others will want to continue to follow you and what y'all are doing at Helios. So what's the best way for everybody to stay in touch and and get in touch, given that that's what you gave us the actual insight? Yes, yes. Uh, You know, self-serving, of course. Uh, yeah. No, you know, you can Google Helios Quantitative Research. You can find us at www.heliosdriven.com. And we're not hard to find if you're looking for us. So, All right. Well, keep doing the good work, my friend, and uh, looking forward to seeing all the great things you do for advisors. Stay well, be well. And uh, thanks again for joining us here on Bridging the Gap. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 